Welcome to The Mend, a podcast for victims and survivors of crime and those who support them, sponsored by the Center for Crime Victim Services um, here in Vermont. My name is Anna Nasset, and I am the host of this bi-monthly podcast and show. On the show today, I am thrilled to have Suzanne Isaza here to discuss incest. Thank you so much for being here, Suzanne. Mm, happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, the show was created to take a deeper look at services and organizations and concepts for victims and survivors of crime. We want to acknowledge our healing process and provide resources, not only in our state of Vermont, but nationally as well. In fact, Suzanne is joining us from Rhode Island today. Um, we just really want to look at what are the different services and support we can offer for victims and survivors of crime in the immediate need as well as into the future. As always, I like to begin with a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss our topics and subject matter, but sometimes that means sharing stories or talking about our mental health. And I think it's important for everyone to remember that if the show is something that might trigger you, you can feel free to step away at any time. As I said, I'm very excited to have Suzanne Isaza here today. Suzanne is the founder and director of Sexual Assault Advocacy Network, or SANE, an organization focused on supporting those who support victims, sorry, an organization focused on supporting those who support survivors and victims. She additionally is an outspoken speaker and advocate on the subject of incest and recently launched a new website, incestawareness.org. Suzanne is also a collaborative partner with, along with me, with the Difference Makers 10 Strong. And as I said today, she's joining us from Rhode Island. And I feel like I've known Suzanne already just through our work as teammates, but we haven't gotten to meet in person. So I'm thrilled to be able to have her here through the powers of Zoom. So welcome, Suzanne. Thank you so much. This is such an awesome opportunity to meet you. You know, I've watched you from afar and you do amazing work. Um, and these topics that we're working so hard to raise awareness on are so important um, that we talk about. Um, so I'm really happy to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, before we get into it, Suzanne and I were just talking about, you know, for me as a, a stalking advocate and you as an incest advocate, you know, these are subjects that, like we said, they often don't get talked about and they get glossed over, they get left out of the conversation. So I'm really happy that you're here to bring the um, crime of incest into conversation and share with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to start with you sharing how you got into the work of advocacy and also how you felt compelled to start the conversation around incest um, in whatever way you're comfortable with sharing. Sure, sure. You know, it's it's funny because when I think about how I got involved in this work, I have to say that I did not grow up saying to myself, I am going to be a sexual assault prevention advocate. That's what I'm going to do. Um, But like a lot of us who are advocating on behalf of survivors, we sort of fall into this work based on our own experience and just feeling the real, the sense inside that we feel compelled to be part of a solution and to solve this problem. Um, I am a survivor of incest, father-daughter incest. Um, I was uh, molested by my father until I was probably about 11 or 12 years old. And, you know, when I think back to my childhood, I remember just sort of walking around under this cloud. It was like, I think of it as like a cloud of shame, right? I knew what was happening in my house was wrong, um, but I didn't have any other context, which is really typical for incest survivors. You know, your family sets the stage for what's normal and what's not. And because there was incest in my home, I figured it was normal. Um, You know, it caused me a lot of trauma, a lot of difficulties, especially as I got older in my teen years. Um, But I I never told anybody. It never really occurred to me that I could do something about it, that I could change my circumstances, that I could stop, you know, the incest happening in my family. Um, When I was older, I was about 18 or 19 years old after I left home, I heard from another family member that my father had sexually abused her and sort of the light went on over my head where I realized that I couldn't do anything to help myself when I was a kid. I never really thought like that. I was just trying to survive. But now as an adult with some independence from this dysfunctional family, I realized I could really do something and help this situation. So I reported him and he was investigated and ultimately convicted on four counts 
of um, sexually abusing four children um, in my extended family. And after that point, I sort of just buried it all. I said, okay, problem solved, you know, done, moving on. But then about six or seven years ago, this issue of advocacy and sharing my story and the need to tell others what I've been through just kept nagging at me, nagging at me. And so I looked around and, and found um, a speaker's bureau that was literally right in my backyard, um, full of survivors, all different types of um, circumstances, all different types of sexual assault, sexual abuse experiences. And we were sort of dispatched around the tiny state of Rhode Island to tell our stories. And once I got involved in that and met other people, I was like, I am home. <laughs> like, this is what I've wanted to do and needed to do for my whole life. And since then it really snowballed, started doing, you know, like I'm sure this story is very familiar to you, Anna, because indeed another, <laughs> and then you're writing a book and you're doing a conference <clears throat> and you wake up one day and you say, how did this all happen? Um, but last year I, I really began to feel after Me Too that for people like me who are out there doing all this advocacy but not doing it as a staff member of an organization, I felt like I didn't have any base. I didn't have a community. I didn't have a way of like talking to other people and asking them how they handle certain um, things or trying to get trained or just, just getting better emotional support for what I do. So I created the Sexual Assault Advocacy Network on Facebook. It was just a Facebook group and I was hoping to meet up with like maybe 25 or 50 people like, like me just to kind of sit around and chat online. And then after a couple of months, we had a thousand members and I realized, like, you know, it's not just me feeling this way. There's a lot of me out there and yeah. helped to really validate, I think, the need that many of us have to be part of something bigger than ourselves, because it's a tough work. You know, I'm sure yeah. you can identify with it. It's really, really tough work. It's tough work, and we're very isolated and alone in it. You know, we don't have neighbors or friends who are colleagues. Um, and it is, I think it's amazing that you started that organization, because we do need that. And we, we also, you know, we didn't get into this field of work because things went easy for us. Um, is what I always say. People are like, how'd you get into this field of work? I'm like, well, not because things have gone well or according to plan, but, you know, we've created this joy out of our resiliency. And I just love the support work that you're doing. Yes, I love that joy out of resiliency. I mean, I think that's what a lot of us embody when we start to become more public and share our story. And of course, that's not the, that's not the road for everybody. But for those of us who feel compelled, it really does, at least for me, it's given my life a lot of meaning. Um, it's helped me to understand where I am today, how I got here, but also to have a lot of compassion and a lot of empathy for other kids like me, you know, who are stuck in these families of violence and oppression and misery. And so every day I wake up and I say, you know, how can I be part of this solution? Um, and earlier over the summer, I really started to think more and more specifically about incest abuse, because I do a lot of sort of general sexual assault prevention work. But I realized that we're still not, you know, really talking about incest. We're still not really using that word. I don't hear that word hardly at all. And usually I'm the, I'm the person saying it. Um, and realized we need to do more. Um, and I went looking on the internet for some organization or a website that was, you know, sort of a, a, a focal point of incest information, awareness and prevention. And there was just, there was nothing. I said, there was actually, what I stumbled upon in my Google search were links to articles um, advocating for incest to be um, decriminalized and legal. Um, you know, links to porn sites that focus on incest porn. I mean, I got links to all this types of stuff. And I thought to myself, what about a young survivor going and, and Googling, you know, help for incest survivors and coming up with, you know, a link to a porn site. I said, it's, it's just unacceptable. Like it in is. this age, it's unacceptable. So I created um, a website called incestaware, incestaware.org or .com will get you there too. And I worked with about 20 other incest survivors to put together the material and um, the images and the messages on the site. It's really a site that's meant to be empowering and encouraging and to let people know you're not alone. 
It's really a beautiful site. Um, I was, I've been on it several times and definitely in preparing for this interview and it's just, it's really, really well done and it's, it's warm and it's welcoming. It's easy to navigate. Um, Cause I also do web design. So I'm just like, this is really, really well done. So anybody who needs it, incestaware.org, please, please go check it out. Um, so within that, like, let's dive a little bit more into talking about incest and, you know, it is a word that we don't hear. And so, you know, I'm glad that we're having this conversation and being able to vocalize this term because it is so important to taking away the stigma and the shame that gets associated with it. Um, so the, I think we've kind of already answered the question, but why do you feel there are so few services and advocacy regarding incest? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge problem. Um, I think there are a couple of really clear um, reasons for that. And one of them is that incest is just a hidden and considered to be very shameful topic. You know, people don't bring up their incest experience around the Thanksgiving table. They, you know, most people, you know, most survivors of child sexual abuse don't tell anyone. And the average age of disclosure is 52, which is, yep. you know, significantly older than me. So I think about, wow, holding that secret and living with that feeling of shame and isolation for that long. It's just, it's, it's incredible to think about that. Um, it is not considered acceptable to talk to people about this. And because of that, the public isn't aware of the scope of the problem. Um, you know, of all child sexual abuse reports, one third of them involve a family member involve incest. So a very large number of kids who are being sexually abused are being abused by somebody in their family, some you know caregiver, extended family member. And that aspect of child sexual abuse is often not talked about. We sort of lump everybody together. And although there's a lot of common similarities between um, kids who are abused by a family member and those who are not by a family member, being part of a dysfunctional family system that doesn't validate your experience, that doesn't keep you safe, poses a whole other set of problems for incest survivors to have to navigate. And I'll tell you, like, Anna, like I'm still navigating them now. At, you know, at 45, like I am still trying to sort through family dynamics and figure out when I go to a holiday, you know, party, like, how am I going to deal with this person? How am I going to deal with that person? So um, just the lack of discussion, the lack of awareness means that organizations have not responded with the types of services and help that they really should be. And so part of the reason why I started this website is to get that awareness going and to get that discussion going about what we need. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you for doing that so that we have that information. Um, can you share, I mean, I, we know what incest is, but just kind of maybe the broader definition of it, um, as well as some data around it and how it affects people, um, both in the short term and the long term. Mm -hmm. um, I myself am a survivor of being molested by a babysitter as a child. And I know those long-term things, like you were saying, like we still deal with this. And so if you can just kind of break down some of that for our listeners, that would be great. Sure. Let me tackle the definition of incest because that is something that honestly, I'm really struggling with right now since I've developed this website and focused more on incest prevention, I'm realizing the word is really problematic. And the reason why it's problematic is because it, it describes a whole host of scenarios where there's some form of sexual contact between family members. Now, you cannot lump in and like a survivor like myself, a survivor of childhood incest abuse by a parent, with two adults who meet in adulthood, happen to be related and have a consensual sexual relationship. Using the same word to describe those very different situations, it's, it's, it's a big problem. Um, and so I've been having a lot of discussions with people in this field about how do we correctly identify what incest is. And so lately I've been using the term incest abuse so that people understand right away I'm not talking about Game of Thrones, I'm not talking about relationships between brothers and sisters that, you know, are consensual. When I talk about incest, I'm talking about um, children or even adults who are being abused with a, with a, you know, power dynamic and being threatened and being coerced and manipulated. That's the type of, of incest that I'm talking about. So 
really, I feel like we need a new word. I really do. I feel like we need a new word. Um, I hear that. That makes a lot of sense. And I definitely will start using the term incest abuse because I think that, you know, we have to look at the survivors to say, what, what do you want to refer to this as? I think that's super important. So, yes, yes. And just a little side note, I actually went on to Google, you know, <laughs> one of my best places for information. And I, I asked Google to tell me what the definition of incest was. And it told me Miriam Webster and Oxford and the major dictionaries say that it's sexual contact between family members. And I stopped and said, that is problematic because there's no incorporation here of the acknowledgement that it's harmful and abusive. The vast majority of incest is harmful and abusive. Um, so, so we need to be more precise about that. But incest affects a lot of people. Um, many of us don't use the term and so we're not sort of identified as incest survivors but I'll give you a couple of um, statistics. I mentioned before that one third of all reports of child sexual abuse were committed by a family member. Um, and that's a really high number. If we think of one in four girls and one in six boys being abused by the time they're 18, we're talking about like huge number of people affected mm -hmm. in this country. Um, and we know that 91% of all child sexual abuse survivors knew their perpetrator. Right? They, they somehow knew the person that groomed them or attacked them in some way. Um, and there's one aspect of incest that we are not really talking about at all. And, and lately this has been my focus of getting these stories out there and that's sibling abuse. Um, and there's very little research out there that's current on incest, but some research that was done several decades ago indicates that sibling abuse Usually it's a much older sibling, like six, seven, you know, 10 year old age difference between the, the, um, the child who abuses and, and the younger child who's the survivor. Um, yeah, sibling incest could be uh, is five times as common as parent-child incest, but because we don't hear those stories, it's really hard to get a sense of how accurate that statistic is because it's pretty old. Um, and how to deal with that because there's a whole lot of dynamics in families that can contribute to sibling incest happening. Um, but you were asking about effects. They're very similar to the effects of, you know, people being sexually assaulted really at any age, a lot of trauma response, you know, the depression, the anxiety, I list some of these off and I've, you know, many of these I've experienced myself, um, eating disorders, yeah, hand up. Eating. Hand up, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, addictions, all different types of addictions and self-mutilation -mutil and promiscuity. I mean, these are very common responses. Um, and oftentimes, you know, we, we know people who have these problems and who are suffering and we don't know their stories all the time. And it's not very common in our country to ask like, really what's going on? It seems like, you know, you're really suffering. It seems like there's something really awful going on in your life. Let's talk about it. People don't tend to ask those questions. So um, a lot of survivors go unnoticed, um, but, but lots of, you know, really serious life altering um, effects from incest. I think one of the biggest challenges survivors have is how to deal with family once you've aged out of that home, you've moved on, all of a sudden, now you're planning for Thanksgiving. And now you're trying to figure out that family member who continues to call you, you cannot get them to stop calling you. And every time they call, it's, a, it's another traumatic you know, situation. How do you handle that? And so many adult incest survivors have to spend a lot of time and energy and, and therapy to determine how do I create these boundaries between myself and this dysfunctional family? How do I cope with this? And that's, I think for me, looking back, that is one of the biggest challenges for being a survivor for me. How, um, I was gonna ask that later on, but how do you, how did you navigate that? How do you suggest others navigate that? Um, dealing with family as they move forward? I mean, we're, we have the holidays coming around and yes, we're in a pandemic, but I know people will, still be seeing each other. So what have, what have boundaries have you done and what have you done to support your own self through that process with family? Yeah, in my early twenties, after I had left home and really washed my hands of my family and said, I need to separate from, from these people because they're, they're just so dysfunctional. Um, I really took a lot of space. And I think that's important for survivors to 
figure out if you need space and you need distance and you need to say, I just cannot be in contact with you. Um, I think that is perfectly fine, appropriate, very normal. Um, but as we get older and I, in my circumstance, I started to want to reconnect with family. Um, I never reconnected with my, my parents, my father. I've not had any communication with him since I reported him at age 19. And my mother, I've had very little contact with her as well because she supported my father. She never acknowledged the abuse that was happening in our family, even though he's a convicted sex offender. So um, just because there hasn't been that validation, it's just been very hard to be authentic and to be, and to feel that the person that I am and the experience that I had was important and, and should be acknowledged. And, and many members of my family just don't acknowledge it. So I would suggest to other people to really take a hard look and say, you know, who do I feel safe around? Who do I not feel safe with? How can I create some, some parameters, some, some boundaries so that I can interact in the way that I feel comfortable, but also retreat when I need to? Um, I think one thing that survivors we face a lot is the guilt around like, well, I guess I should go to Thanksgiving. You know, I, I shouldn't be the one who's always saying, no, I don't want to be around you. I should learn how to, how to be with these family members, even though they may have abused you or they may have denied that anything ever happened and never validated you. I think, you know, it's, it's really important for us to, to look at ourselves and to say, I deserve to be validated and to feel safe. And if I can't do this, if I cannot be around this family and feel that way, then I'm I'm okay. I'm going to step back. I am going to step away, and that's totally fine. You know, absolutely. First, a lot. You know, I was used to think that that was selfish. Now I realize it's actually self-preservation. It is. I mean, ultimately, we we have to set our own boundaries. And even if people try and talk us into making different choices, it's our choice. And you know, we can start to create our own families uh, with friends and different people that feel safe and have that. And but it might not be the family that you were born into. And I really, really respect the boundaries that you've put in place um, around around how you need to be able to move forward. I think it's incredibly important and very difficult to do. It is. It's it's really challenging, and I think there's no end to it. I think, you know, I will never be comfortable around many members of my family. Um, you know, I've seen a therapist for many years, which is like one piece of advice I give to survivors, like therapy can be so helpful for navigating these types of issues. Um, and I've really realized that, you know, the steps that I've taken to heal and the steps that I've taken to create boundaries are really important to me, but that I may never feel 100% comfortable with them. I'm never gonna be able to just walk into any family situation and be that warrior and walk away and say, yeah, I handled that really well. I think there's always some insecurity and doubt. Um, but what's important is that we walk away and we said, you know, I paid attention to myself. I looked at my needs. I put my needs first here. Absolutely, absolutely. Good for you. Um, can you share for our listeners what are some of the warning signs for community members, for family members, um, teachers, and others to be aware of for, for children to be able to look at for children who are possibly having an incest abuse situation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I'm all about prevention because I think there are so many opportunities to intervene in cases of incest and child sexual abuse in general, but they're missed opportunities. And I think back to my own experience and people knew, adults around me knew, other children knew, they saw the signs, but they either didn't recognize them for what they were, or they turned away and said, this isn't my thing. I don't, you know, I don't wanna get involved and maybe I'm misinterpreting. Um, and what I tell people is we wanna ask. We want to ask if you if you if that gut feeling that that person that you know that's always around children that has you know special child friends um, that gives a lot of gifts to a child that's always talking about sex in inappropriate ways or making inappropriate you know comments about people's bodies or kids' bodies 
the person that's got a porn, a problem with porn and is hiding their porn use. I mean, it's sort of like a lot of, a lot of indications that a person um, could be at risk of hurting a child. And when we, when we look at those signs, if you look at just one of them, you might say, well, that's, you know, so he's got a porn problem or she's got a porn problem, right? That doesn't mean that they're a child abuser. But if you look at the signs and you find that there's four or five, you know, six signs this person has, then I think we have to operate under the assumption that there's something happening here. Um, and I think, you know, as Americans, we tend to not want to believe that bad things are happening in families, um, but a lot of bad things are happening. And so if we see these warning signs, we have to take some action. There's a really great um, organization called Stop It Now. And they have, I have to tell this little story. So I, I went on their website years ago and started looking around at the resources that they had because they do a lot of work on child sexual abuse prevention. And I went into the area of their website of how to spot warning signs, you know, what the, the profile of a predator. And I thought, well, this will be interesting, right? And I pulled up one of their fact sheets. And the fact sheet was signs that someone is at risk of abusing a child. And I read through it and my father had like 13 of the 15 signs on that sheet. And that was a real wake up to me. I said, how did nobody notice? How did nobody recognize? Because people are not aware of the signs, right? Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, for people who are teachers or other, you know, adults, you know, of children who are outside of their family or members of a church, you know, keeping your eyes peeled, getting to know the kids that are around you, recognizing when kids are disclosing, the, you know, because kids will never come up to you and say, you know, Anna, I'm being molested by my father. It just it very rarely happens, but they right. will show you other signs. They will show you some of those traumatic responses that we talked about earlier. Um, you know, all of a sudden having trouble in school, having trouble at home, um, you, you know, substance use, having a lot of sexual partners for younger kids, like excessive self-touch or preoccupation with, with sexual um, ideas or thoughts or actions. Um, and I think it's important for people to educate themselves about those as well, because if you pick up on that, you can take a child aside and, you know, you don't, you don't have to be a PhD. You could just say, Hey, I've noticed X, Y, and Z, you know, how's everything going at home? Is anything happening at home you want to talk about? Has anybody done anything recently that's made you feel uncomfortable? Has anybody touched you under, you know, the area that a bathing suit covers? And there's a lot of different ways we can, we can ask in age appropriate But, um, but yeah, there are a lot of signs. I think the big thing is if we keep our eyes open, that we notice them and we take some type of action. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think the biggest thing is it's like, you know, you're right. Like people are like, oh, I'm, it's not my responsibility. I don't want to meddle. I don't want to intervene. You know, there's probably nothing happening here. So this person's going to think I don't like them if I ask questions or it's like, just ask the questions. Mm -hmm. I'd, you know, rather offend somebody than have something happen to a child. I mean, that's really what it comes down to a lot of times. And yeah, so I think that's really good. Um, how do you, how can people survivors and also how can they help in crisis and intervene if a child has disclosed to them that something has happened in their home? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of ways that people can help. I, I think the first step is acknowledging what's happened and validating the survivor, whether the survivor is five or 95. Um, as you know, survivors, we know that we want validation. We want to know, we want to be acknowledged. We want to be recognized if have not you know, been responsible for the abuse. We want people to understand that it happened, that it wasn't our fault, that we couldn't do anything to prevent it. So these are all the messages that we can be sending to survivors. You know, it wasn't your fault. This is awful. It should never have happened. Um, I believe you. Just you, yes. That is, and we don't have to have a PhD really, I think, to handle these circumstances. I think just knowing the basics, the I believe you, I'm going to be here to help you. I'll be here every step of the way. I tell you, if somebody said that to me as a kid, my the trajectory of my life would be so much different. 
Um, I never received that validation and still don't get that from many of my family members today. So number one thing, validate survivors. Um, The next thing I would suggest is be educated. And we may not have done this in advance. You might know, have met a survivor and realized, gee, I don't, I don't know enough about this. Get educated, get educated on what incest is and what it isn't. Um, get educated as far as the resources that are out there to help survivors, because there are a lot of resources. And particularly now, so many things have moved online, so many support groups and information portals and um, even therapy services are now available just online. So there's a lot out there. Um, And just being aware of what's there and being able to suggest that to whether it's a child or an adult and let them know, point them to it. You know, these are some things that might help you depending on the situation. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of pages on the website that I created that I think would be really helpful. One of them is resources for survivors. So I have a section of the site that's just designed for people who know, love or work with a survivor and um, lots of links, lots of information, how best to help them. Um, There's also a page on crisis intervention and how you can help somebody who's experiencing a mental health crisis. Maybe they've had a suicide attempt. Maybe they're in a serious throes of an addiction. How you as a supporter can help direct them to resources and encourage them along the way. Um, So so, I I think the the message of I'm going to be here to help you is big is big. And you with your, you know, with your background, your knowledge of stalking, I think a lot of times as a survivor, you feel like you're on your own. You're in an island. Nobody's going to be there to help you. I mean, because if your parents aren't even there to help you when, you know, you're having a hard time, why would I think that anyone else would, right? Right. Letting the survivors know I'm here to help you for whatever you need. Just be, you know, contact me, reach out to me. It's a, that's a really, really powerful message. Yeah, those two things, um, <clears throat> there's a big campaign this year of just, it's just start by believing, you know, start by saying, I believe you and I'm there for you. Like what a difference that makes. Mm-hmm. And just, it really can change. Those two statements can change someone's life trajectory. You're so, so correct about that. Yes. Um, I also really like that on your website, you have a section for teens as well, which I think is really important to have that specific resources for young adults. Um, you know, as you said, oftentimes people don't disclose this information till well into their adult life. And one of the very, very negative phrases that we hear is, why did they wait so long to report? What does it matter now? Why are they even reporting? It happened 30 years ago. Um, this is an incredibly blaming and incredibly devaluing statement to make, but can you share with people your thoughts around that statement or those ideas and what, you know, a correct response would be instead of being, instead of going to that place of why did you wait so long? What is another way we can, what is another way we can address that? Yes. That is like my, my, my favorite blaming state statement in terms of like, this is what I hear so often. And this is the thing that drives me the craziest. Right. Um, I think, you know, particularly with family abuse, family members will do whatever they can to deflect, to deny. Because once you recognize that you have a perpetrator in your midst, now you have to do something about it. And many families don't want to take those steps. They don't wanna have to divorce a spouse. They don't wanna have to say, you know, I'm gonna report you and you might go to jail. so I think we, we, we want to just pretend that it's not happening. And so we try to figure out how we can deflect from taking responsibility. And so one of the things that people will say is, well, why did you wait so long? You know, and it puts the onus and the responsibility on the survivor of defending themselves, right? For something that they never even um, instigated. So I think, but at the same time, I think it is a really important question in the sense that we do have to recognize why people take so long to come forward. Um, And this is without the the, the blaming piece attached that for many of us, 
being able to be in a mental and, and, and healthy space to be able to disclose something that has a major impact on your life can take many, many years. Um, and also, you know, children who are abused, a lot of them, up to one third of them, have little to no memory of the event. And sometimes we'll recover these memories later in life and sometimes people will never, yeah, sometimes people will, will actually never really recover everything. So to have the sense, sort of like the little snapshots, almost like a movie reel. That's what happened to me. Um, I didn't recall it until I was in my twenties and got triggered by reading a book and suddenly started to have these images come up. So it's very, yeah, I mean, that definitely happens. Yes, yes, yeah. And our brains, you know, our, our brains are really smart. When you're a kid and you're going through this, this awful experience, your brain just shuts part of it down, itself down. Yeah. And it helps us to survive by not, you know, remembering, by not being conscious, by dissociating. And that was definitely what happened to me. I've still had a lot of trouble with recovering a lot of memories of what happened, but I've recovered enough to know um, that it did happen. And I think that you know, for survivors who come forward and say, God, I think I'm going, I'm going crazy. You know, I think I'm going nuts because I'm remembering all these things and it doesn't make sense. Validation. You did experience that. I believe you tell me more and really help that person to recognize and to believe themselves that what they're experiencing and remembering is actually real. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So, so I think, you know, for, for survivors who um, come forward years later, and if they're asked by people, I think it, it is really um, okay for us to say, you know what, the, the trauma and the tragedy of what I went through was so awful, I just have not been able to speak about it. Um, or for people who don't report, who might like tell other people something's happened, but never report it to authorities until like long, long afterwards. Um, as a survivor, you can say, you know, it is the difficulties in reporting and being sometimes inter interrogated by law enforcement, interrogated by the courts, not being believed, having to go through this awful court process that, you know, maybe I'm not prepared for. All of those things have kept me from reporting until this point. So, I mean, I think we can counteract some of the ignorance when someone says, you know, why have you waited so long? with the basics, with the facts, which is people wait a long time because they really can't handle disclosure and yeah. they can't handle sometimes the memories that are associated with it. Plus, especially when they're children, you know, like you said, like your, your family is supposed to be your safety. So, you know, you're, they're the ones that are teaching you. So if they're also the ones that are harming you, it's really hard to be able to separate those things. And as a child, know how to report or have any inclination to do that. And then, like you said, yeah, I mean, it, this goes into our brain, we lock it away, it comes out years later. Um, you know, I have this firm belief that justice looks different for every single person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if for somebody seeking justice is making a report, it might not be that there's an arrest, it might not be they, they just finally want to be heard. For them, that is justice, is to be heard and believed. And it comes yeah. back to that start by believing. Yeah, start by believing. And when I do sexual assault prevention talks, you know, I, I say to people, create a trail. Because, you know, the Larry Nassers of the world, the Harvey Weinsteins, the Bill Cosbys, there was such a trail of survivors that they left in their wake that um, had everyone reported and so you don't have to report to a police officer. You know, you can just report by telling somebody that you know, mm -hmm. somehow letting the news out there. Because then when that person is finally brought to court and faces charges, now you have, all, you have this trail of reports. So even if as a survivor, you can't bear the thought of going and filing a report, telling people, getting it down, like getting it down on paper can be the first step to letting other people know that this person is dangerous and also to ultimately down the road, you know, bring them to justice and hold them accountable. Because if you don't, you know, if you don't hold perpetrators accountable, they're just out there to do it to God knows how many other people. I mean, look at Larry Nassar. So yeah. I think it was like 150 or 200 people came out. Um, yeah. 
you know, over 30 people for Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, God knows what that number is up to now. You know, they're, they are out there doing the same thing to other people. Um, but I think one other thing I mentioned about this that I learned in doing research for this site that, you know, even after reporting abuse to a family member, you know, as a child, they've done research on this and found that one year later, half of those kids were still being abused by that person, even after they disclosed. So in only 50% of the cases following a disclosure, something is actually done to protect the child. So reporting is, you know, step A. And then step B is, okay, now we have to make sure that we follow up on that report and take steps to keep this kid safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really important. Yeah, it's not just, a, okay, well, we've made the report, we walk away now and go on with our lives. There has to be that continuous follow-up and care and concern um, for, for everyone. Um, what are some, we've gone over a lot of this, but what are some of the different support options or tools, um, just as we're winding down this episode, that you would recommend for listeners who are a survivor of incest or those who care for a survivor and love them? Um, you know, obviously your website, but just maybe some other things that you found really helpful. Yes. I, you know, every survivor is different. I think everybody's healing path is different. Um, some people prefer to heal more in private. Others really do well with being in community with other people. Um, but I think my, my number one recommendation for anybody is to seek out a good therapist. I mean, it's not, it's not essential for healing. I think we can heal without that one-on-one -on -one relationship, but I mean, I've had a therapist for over 20 years and it has helped me to go through so much, not only to process my experience, but also to help me do things like learning about self-care. Like what is self-care in the first place and how do, I, how do I practice it? Learning how to handle intimate relationships. Sexual assault survivors know in the bedroom, you bring a lot of that in. Um, and so how do we figure that out? How do we work with that? Um, so there's having a close relationship with an experienced therapist, somebody who's trauma informed and understands the abuse dynamics. Um, that's, that can be such a great um, healing uh, modality. And then also um, looking for groups of other people who have been through something similar. There's so many support groups that are offered online. I mentioned that early. Um, and some organizations might even have them in person, like assuming we get past COVID, <laughs> which we will, but um, there's also in-person groups and, and sometimes that community, that sense of community and, and sharing with one another and learning from other people can be really helpful. Um, I think for teen survivors, you know, some teen survivors are still caught in incest abuse. And I think for them, um, I would advise people to, you know, help that teenager to be able to disclose and find a safe and trusting person to do that. Um, and it may not be a friend, you know, some teenagers cannot handle their friend disclosing abuse and they may say the absolute wrong thing. Um, yeah. So for, for teens who are, you know, looking to get you know, looking to talk about their experience, get safe, um, start the healing process, really finding a trusted adult is, is, is big. Um, so there, I mean, there are a lot of ways that people can support survivors and we touched on, on some of them already. Um, being there just to validate, being there in the middle of the night when that person is going through a crisis I mean, I have several friends who I've known through my work who hit really bad times and we all go through it. I go through it. <laughs> Maybe you go Absolutely. through it. No, we're never like 100%, you know, um, we always have those times where we really, we need that support. So letting yourself be there as, as a helpful person, as somebody who, you know, who has that person's back, that is a really great message to send to survivors. Absolutely. Like for me, when I'm low, people know it because I watch Gilmore Girls and curl up under a stack of quilts. Like that is my being like, hey, everyone, I am not doing well. So please take care of me. And I think it's important when we identify that in the people around us of knowing like, OK, that's their that's their tell that they're not doing well. And and we can give them that extra love and support and understanding that they need. 
Yeah, yeah. And incest survivors can be very vague. And I think back to my own experience being a kid, you know, it took me a long time to actually pinpoint and use the word, you know, I'm being molested by my father. I'm, I'm an incest survivor. I mean, those are like, it's like the word incest just kind of gets stuck in your throat. It's like, you try to say it and it just doesn't, it doesn't come out. It's not easy. And it takes us a long time to feel even remotely comfortable with that. And so incest survivors, you know, sometimes we can be kind of cagey. We want to talk, but we don't want to talk. You know, we're we're comfortable with friends and we're comfortable with romantic partners. And then we're not because growing up in a family where you're being abused and nobody intervenes and nobody does anything about it, there's, there's so many trust issues that develop. Um, so we're not, you know, we're not always direct about our needs. Like for you, that's interesting how you've identified it for other people. If you see me doing this, <laughs> then you know, I'm feeling this way. I may not say I'm feeling this way, but that's your clue. And I think that's yeah. an awesome strategy for getting support from people. Yes. I too have had a good therapist for many, many years. So, you know, I've kind of had to learn to be like, okay, well, I know when I'm not okay, and I might not be able to verbalize it, but I can give these indicators to others. So, yes. yeah. You know, one other group of people we haven't talked about is, is partners, romantic partners or spouses, you know, of incest survivors. It is really challenging and being, you know, married, like I understand myself very much, my own struggles with intimacy and romance, but also my partners, because sometimes partners, they really want to help but they don't know what to do. What's the right thing to say? You know, what, how should I be acting? How should I be supporting? And so sometimes you can really feel as a partner, like you have no idea what to do um, to support this, this person, this incest survivor in your life. And there are a lot of really good um, books and on incestaware.org, there's a reading list and there's some great books for partners because partners can really, really be, super supportive. They can be such a great help for survivors who are just coming forward with, um, with information about abuse. Sometimes people don't even tell their own partners, like for their entire lives that they were ever abused. That's how locked in these secrets can be. Wow. For, for partners, there is help out there. There's just some really great books for either for them to read or to read with, with um, the survivor in their life. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you have a wealth of information and resources on your website incestaware.org for people to check out and just <clears throat> thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and just like I said your vulnerability your transparency and your quest for joyful resilience as well um, it's really evident in getting to share this time with you today thank you um, as we close down is there anything you feel like we haven't covered today we covered a lot, but as sort of like a, you know, a message to people is that you're not alone for any sexual assault survivor. You are not alone. So many of us have gone through exactly what you are going through now or have gone through and that healing is possible. You know, we can feel better you know, as incest survivors. Some of us have been through such awful things and our lives continue to be awful as adults because we haven't yet been able to process and feel safe. Um, that healing is always available and that to take those steps to make your own recovery the most important thing in your life, that will really, really help to feel, to feel better and move forward. Because many of us, you know, we, our academic lives, our career lives, our social lives have all been negatively impacted by abuse. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way, but it's, it's a journey, but it's, it's worth it to, to heal and to, um, you know, be able to put ourselves first. I think that's possible for all of us. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and just thank you, Susan, for being here today. Um, for anybody listening or watching, you can find out more information, as we said, at incestaware.org. And if you're looking for an advocate, or if you're an advocate looking for support um, and connection, you can head on over to sancommunity.org. So that's S-A-A-N community.org um, for just an awesome site that's really uplifting and incredible to help us continue the work that we're doing, which we need. Um, 
I mean, you kind of just did end with a short, like, positive message, but I always like, you know, if there's just one parting little phrase or statement that you'd like to share with our listeners as we close out. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think there's probably many advocates list who will be listening to this podcast. I would say thank you for all you do, you know, and I say this to you too. It really takes a village to make this an issue. I mean, you look back over history, how many women and men, how many people have spoken up for justice and have spoken up for the needs of survivors and it continues today. So the contributions that we are all making, the transparency that you talk about that we are all striving to have makes a difference. Um, and so for all the advocates in the audience, you know, great job, keep it up. And, um, and I'm very proud of all the work that everyone's doing. Awesome. And we're so grateful for you and all the work you're doing. Uh, thank you, Suzanne, so much for being here. Um, and for our listeners, if you have any questions for me, you can always email me on at standupresources.com. And um, thank you so much for listening this week. If you have a chance to give us a little review on the podcast or on our YouTube link, we'd greatly appreciate it. That really helps us as we move forward um, with this work to know who's listening and what you would like to learn about and hear about. So thank you again, Suzanne. Um, I'll be back with you all in a couple of weeks on the mend. And in the meantime, be well. Thank you.